Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? So here's a new way of looking at Canada that is also a startling new way to consider what's happening in the Arctic. Sea ice, critical to so much of life there, is shrinking. And you may know that already. But listen to this. 40 years ago, at this time of year, which is the time of year when the ice is at its lowest level, it measured the equivalent of all of Canada's 10 provinces. That's from Newfoundland and Labrador to BC. Today, for this year in 2020, you have to get rid of all of the sea ice that would have covered British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And that's what we're left with. That's what we're left with. The latest measurement done just days ago confirms that trend and is raising alarm about whether and how it can ever be reversed. This week, we look at that melting ice, why it's disappearing, what it means for the people who depend on it, and one potential solution to try to bring back the big freeze. So as I said, melting sea ice doesn't just affect the oceans. It has a massive impact on the people living beside them as well. Take Frank Pokiak. He's a Nuvialuit, lives in Taktoyaktuk in the Northwest Territories, and he's a former chair of the Inuvialuit Game Council. He's 68, and he's been hunting for most of his life. He remembers a time when the freeze-up came much earlier than it does now. One time we came back from, like, hunting geese. We called a place called Shallow Bay. And uh, we were on our way home on the 20th of September after the geese left. And me and my uncles and my brothers, it got dark on us, so we camped in the mouth of the river. And uh, when we got up in the morning, it was pretty windy, but boy, the ocean looks so calm. I wonder how come it's so calm when we got up and we realized it was frozen over in September 20th. And we had to break ice all the way to tuck I stayed in front of the boat and busted the ice all the way with my feet. <laughs> I had my belly against the front of the boat and I was just stomping with my feet. Frank laughs at that memory, but he doesn't do much of that anymore. He's older now and he says the conditions have changed a lot in the last 40 years. The temperature's been warm. Like it's been, I noticed that uh, like in the 70s and early 80s, we used to set the uh, fishnets under the ice this time of year in the harbor and right now there's the ocean and the harbor is still open that's a big change i've seen you know i notice we don't get as much storms you know real big snowstorms because uh, when i used to trap you know sometimes you're late that you're you you have to just stop and wait the weather out for three four days in one spot because it gets so stormy you can't see anything and we don't really get that kind of weather anymore. Freeze up, coming later, fewer snowstorms. He's seeing it happen more often now. And yet Frank is confident future generations will be able to adjust. Living in the north, you know, like our ancestors and ourselves been adapting to these changes. Uh, you know, in my short life on this earth, I've seen so much changes on the land, you know. And uh, you just seem to 
change with the time. You just take more precautions when you're going out on a land because, you know, uh, the ice don't get a stick anymore, so you have to be really careful. My, my grandson's going to have to learn to adapt to these changes, and he's going to have to be more careful when he travels on the land because uh, people did go through ice where it should be solid, you know. That's what you have to watch out for. Do you ever um, think about the fact that your grandson probably won't have the same kind of life that you've had living in that part of the world? You know, we'll always have ice in the north, eh? Will you? We will always have ice in the north. It'll always be there. It's just that it freezes up later and breaks up earlier, you know? But we'll always have ice out here. You're a very optimistic man. Frank Pokiak. He lives in Tuktoyaktuk in the Northwest Territories. He is an optimistic man. He's a longtime hunter, and he's also a former chair of the Inuvialuit Game Council. The changing ice and its impact is clear to see for people living in the Arctic. Now scientists are trying to better understand what it will mean for global climate. The largest polar expedition ever undertaken has been looking at that question, spending an entire year in a research vessel drifting in Arctic sea ice. We are right now in the central Arctic, not that far from the North Pole, actually, at uh, right now 86 degrees uh, north and uh, 75 degrees east. That's Professor Marcus Rex speaking on satellite phone from the Mosaic Expedition's Polar Stern Icebreaker. In August, they traveled to the North Pole through a part of the Arctic north of Greenland that's normally covered with thick ice and has been frozen for years. That is a region where typically we, we would try to avoid that. That's a region where we have uh, thicker uh, sea ice, uh, mighty annual sea ice. Um, but this year was completely different. Uh, we went uh, pretty much right uh, through to the North Pole through wide stretches of open water, very thin ice. It took us only six days from the ice edge to the North Pole in that region, which typically is characterized by really thick uh, ice, which is hard to break. Looking out the window and seeing gray ice just starting to form from the rapid summer melt, Rex has this warning. It is striking to see these sea uh, ice conditions right now, and we see ourselves also as ambassadors uh, from the Arctic. We have encountered it. We have experienced uh, these very unusual sea ice uh, conditions that we have this year. And uh, we need to tell the people at home who do not have a chance to see it with their own eyes, uh, we need to tell them uh, how dramatic the changes in the Arctic are already now. If this continues uh, in just a few decades from now, the Arctic will be ice-free in summer. It would be a completely different world, um, even from a far distance uh, from space. Our planet would look uh, uh, differently. Right now, there is this white cap of ice on the North Pole, and then uh, if that happens, then in the future, you would see a dark ocean uh, where we had that eternal uh, ice cap uh, on the North Pole. That is Professor Marcus Rex from the Alfred Wegener Institute, leader of the Polar Stern and the Mosaic Research Expedition, speaking to us from near the North Pole. 
for those of us down south, it may be hard to grasp just how much sea ice we're losing each year with the summer melt, or what it means. Our guide today, though, is Twyla Moon, the deputy lead scientist at the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. That is the organization that tracks all of this, and the one that declared this year's melt the second highest on record. It's devastating. Every time we get close to a new record uh, for Arctic sea ice minimum, to help especially folks there in Canada understand what a big difference we see in these sea ice minimums is the average um, between 1981 and 2010, we had the same amount of sea ice at the end of the summer as if we took all of uh, Canada's kind of more southerly provinces, stretching from British Columbia all the way over to Newfoundland in Labrador. And we had that much sea ice. Today, for this year in 2020, you have to get rid of all of the sea ice that would have covered British Columbia, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And that's what we're left with. Wow, that is quite striking. How does it compare, though, to 2012, which we know is the lowest year ever, and which was called at that time an anomaly? This year, the second on record, is the only other year since 2012 that we've gone below 4 million square kilometers of sea ice. So we got very close to the um, previous record. And sadly, the 14 lowest years of sea ice extent have been the last 14 years. So does it, is it rightly called an anomaly in your mind? Um, sadly, I would no longer consider uh, this particularly anomalous. We've been seeing very consistently low sea ice extents, and um, this is certainly reaching towards the lowest we've seen, but I have no expectation that uh, we will kind of come out and see a resurgence in sea ice. So what is the solution? The only true one is to stop human-caused global warming. But in the meantime, there are a number of pitches to intervene and save Arctic ice or a patch of it with some kind of geoengineering. Now, people have proposed wind-powered pumps to spray seawater on the surface of the ice, submarines to make tiny icebergs, and covering ice with sand-like glass spheres to slow its melt. That last idea comes from Leslie Field. Um, initially, I would feel pretty embarrassed to say, you know, I, I think I'm going to try to fight climate change by saving the Arctic. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> she is an inventor and an engineer who's worked for Chevron and Hewlett Packard. And she's used to working on extremely small machines in Silicon Valley. But now she's looking at the vast problem of vanishing sea ice as a founder of a nonprofit called the Arctic Ice Project. The goal? is slowing the melt. We have found that a material called hollow glass microspheres, which as you say is a lot like a floating white sand, is a very effective way to increase ice reflectivity in rather thin layers. And it's a inherently pretty benign material, pretty safe, But why very does, safe. Why does the reflectivity of the ice matter and what is climate change doing to it? Ah, yes, so we're, we've been in what is called a positive feedback loop which is something that means it goes faster the more it happens. And that is that the more multi-year old ice melts, the faster what remains will be melting. So to us, ice might just look like ice. But actually, multi-year ice, the stuff that survives the summer melt, is brighter and more reflective than new ice. And that is what the world has been losing. 
Why does that matter? It's essentially like taking a white t-shirt off the Arctic in the summer months where the sun is shining 24 hours a day. We've taken the white t-shirt off much of the Arctic now, and we've replaced it with that open ocean that has very little reflectivity. We've replaced it with a dark blue t-shirt. So we end up absorbing much more solar energy in the summer than we used to, and that helps drive global temperature rise. Now, that Twyla Moon of the University of Colorado Boulder says speeds up temperature rise around the planet. Well, if we have ocean waters that are uh, exposed during summer uh, that they wouldn't have been before, they're able to absorb heat from radiation during the summer and hold on to it and then release that heat as we begin to cool in fall and winter. And that raises the atmosphere temperature, uh, which makes it, again, harder to produce more sea ice. So this is an a really vicious amplifying loop in which the loss of sea ice allows us to warm the ocean and ultimately warm the atmosphere, which makes it even harder to produce more sea ice. And the atmosphere uh, doesn't stay in the Arctic. The atmosphere around the globe is very well connected. And so as we see changes happen in the climate in the Arctic, those changes do influence um, weather and climate that we experience at lower latitudes. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So there you have it, the problem laid out for you. Leslie Field's idea is spreading those hollow glass microspheres on sea ice to make new first-year ice brighter, putting that white t-shirt back on so that it melts more slowly. Now, it's been tested on lakes so far with some promising results in Minnesota. We found that it worked. It delayed the melt. All we're after, really, at least initially as a screening, is to delay the melt. That can have a very large positive impact on, on the Earth's climate especially locally in the Arctic, right? Preserving ice. Even if all of this ends up working, you're, you're still only talking about doing this in a tiny portion of a vast Arctic. How can it really make that much difference? Yeah, that is a very fascinating question that we're in the middle of. Um, we are working with professional climate modelers and we are looking to scale these collaborations upwards again as soon as we can get the funding in sufficiently to do this. What Field and her team are modeling is whether spreading this sand-like stuff over a patch of the Arctic, say the Fram Strait near Greenland, could really make a difference. They're talking 900,000 tons of glass microspheres, and that is covering an area nearly the size of Iceland or Newfoundland, about 100,000 square kilometers. The cost of all that? More than a billion dollars for the glass microspheres alone, and possibly as much as five billion dollars a year all in. Worth it, argues Field, if it works. Um, But it is showing that we can again have a significant impact on ice retention far away from where we're 
doing modeling, doing the actual deployment, which is really an exciting and encouraging result. So you're saying so, that, that by saving a small part here, you can have an impact on a larger part there. If you're choosing your area right, yeah. And so that's a, that's a really profound result that is just getting finalized now. That study hasn't been submitted for peer review yet. In the meantime, the Arctic Ice Project is doing more field trials on seawater ponds in Alaska. But Twyla Moon is doubtful that this or any geoengineering is a good use of limited resources fighting climate change. I am familiar with the Arctic Ice Project and I really commend their drive and creativity. But I think there are some strong concerns with this project. First, the expense of deploying this um, when we could be putting those resources towards that fundamental change in emissions. Also, when we think about applying a foreign substance in the Arctic, um, it's very hard to get it there and it's very hard to keep it located in a place of interest. Sea ice actually moves all around. So it's not possible to really uh, target a region in the way that I think they've been hoping it is. And I've also heard concerns from um, biologists and ecologists about having these small glass beads in the ecosystem and floating on the ocean surface and how that might influence um, the creatures at the very bottom of our food chain, the most important area of our food chain, and whether they might mistake it for other food and uh, we could see some pretty dramatic uh, consequences in our Arctic food chain, which would be a real concern. Now, Leslie Field told me their testing so far shows that the glass microspheres are safe and didn't harm the fish or birds they were tested on. But she acknowledges they have more work to do. Still, with billions of dollars and a lot of work on the line, why not just cut down carbon emissions? Leslie Field says that is step one, but we're not moving fast enough. You're right. That has to happen. We're not saying that it doesn't have to happen. But we're not getting there in time to prevent an awful lot of climate devastation. And so that's, that's really the whole point of our work is to give the world time with less devastation to get that important decarbonization work done. Is there a danger though that when you intervene with geoengineering like this, that, that people then don't even try to reduce emissions? They say that this is gonna take care of it. Oh, that's definitely the risk. And I kept this work very quiet for a long time while I was very small scale, you know, trying to see, well, is this actually got a chance of helping? Um, it's called the moral hazard argument, and it's a, it's an excellent argument. Um, and so it's part of why you hear me adamantly say anytime I'm talking about this, this isn't the only thing you have to do. Um, because this alone won't do the job. Conversely, though, we're, we're in a, a lot more trouble if we let Arctic reflectivity disappear. Again, that is Leslie Field, the founder of the Arctic Ice Project. For Twyla Moon, though, the way to protect the sea ice is action on emissions now in every way we know how. I think we can sometimes uh, forget that we are in control of the emissions going into the atmosphere and that despite already seen fundamentally negative changes, bad changes for us, um, that by slowing climate change, we can reduce the speed of these changes. In the case of sea ice, if we were to um, actually manage to reduce warming and begin to um, see cooling at some future time, we could actually grow that sea ice back. 
Climate is something that can feel out of our control, but is in fact very much directly connected with human action. So we have our hands on that knob. I very much understand the urge to want to protect Arctic ice. I feel th exactly the same way and I commend people for thinking creatively. But I want to liken the problem of addressing, for example, just uh, protecting Arctic sea ice to having a hose in your garden. And that hose is full of hundreds of little holes that are all leaking water. And when we're trying to protect sea ice, we're trying to cover up just one of those holes in our garden hose. But there are all these other holes sprouting out because the source of this change, our source of sea ice loss is human emissions of um, carbon dioxide, uh, methane, and other polluting gases. And those are the things coming out of the spigot. Well, it turns out we know that if we collectively instead apply our intellectual energy, our money, our resources towards turning that big knob at the end of our hose, we're going to have an influence on all of the holes that are in our hose. And those are things as different as biodiversity, wildfires, sea level rise, food security, um, health, saltwater inundation, and freshwater sources. So there's so much more potential for what we can uh, improve in how the earth is behaving and the the environment that we humans find ourselves in if we focus on the big knob rather than trying to put band-aids on the smaller leaking holes in our hose. And again, that is Twyla Moon, the deputy lead scientist at the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. For now, there still is sea ice in the Arctic year-round, but as we've heard, the climate models forecast a future where that is not the case. Many simulations show an Arctic without summer sea ice by 2050, and a recent study suggested it could be gone as early as 2035 if we don't turn down that knob and cut emissions. Now, there are efforts to protect the last place in the Northern Hemisphere that's expected to be frozen year-round, and it is known as the Last Ice Area. Our producer, Lisa Johnson, brings us that story. Hello, Lisa. Hello. That name, the Last Ice Area, kind is kind of haunting. Where is it? Yeah, it is a very evocative name, and that's been part of the fight to protect this area. Uh, in terms of location, the Last Ice Area is mostly in Canada, so Picture the archipelago of islands that stretch north up to Ellesmere Island at the tip. That's part of it. And then over to northern Greenland. Because of the land and currents and all these factors that go into climate projections, that's where scientists expect year-round sea ice will last the longest. Now, some of that modeling was actually commissioned by World Wildlife Fund Canada as part of their efforts to push for protection. Brandon LaForest is a senior specialist of Arctic species and ecosystems with the group. When I think about the last ice area, it's right in the word. Uh, it's called Tuvaluituk in Inuktitut. That means the place where ice never melts. And when I think of the name last ice area, I think of last stand in terms of what more of a physical manifestation do we need of 
the effects of a warming climate and the climate emergency that we are in than the fact that we could lose ice at essentially the North Pole in the summer. And all of these ice-dependent species are pushed to their limits in terms of being able to survive. So let's think about ice-dependent species. I'm guessing the polar bear is one of them. Yes, they are very dependent on thick sea ice for hunting and moving around. But also walrus, uh, seals, beluga, and algae, which, admittedly, not as sexy as whales, but (laughs) also important. (laughs) Part of the food web that grows on ice. And Laura, the narwhal. Ah, the narwhal, the unicorns of the sea. Yes. So those are the whales with a big, long tusk, which is actually a tooth. It comes out of their heads. And I don't know if you have any six-year-olds in your life, but (laughs) uh, like unicorns, narwhals are having quite a pop culture moment right now. Unlike unicorns, they are real. uh, And losing sea ice is not good for them. Here's Brandon LaForest again. Unfortunately for narwhal, they have been identified as the Arctic marine mammal, the most sensitive to the effects of a changing climate. Well, then what, what does losing sea ice actually mean for them? Well, they're built for spending most of their lives under the ice and then popping up for air. So less ice means more shipping traffic in the Arctic, so noise that scientists think is stressing them out. Also, more predators. Killer whales, uh, I learned, eat narwhal, and they are not built to be in the ice. They have that dorsal fin. They can't be um, you know, as, as agile in an icy water. They are now being spotted farther north in the summer as the sea ice melts. Okay, well, but can't the narwhal fight off the killer whales with their tusks? You'd think so. It kind of looks like a jousting sword, right? But it turns out that's not how it works. It's definitely not used for fighting. We can say that. A lot of people think that it's a a tooth that's used to to hurt other whales. But rather, what we see is a narwhal carefully and and playfully uh, almost caressing each other's tusks. When killer whales arrive, a narwhal, which are usually very vocal and, and uh, kind of, uh, they're, they're very vocal underwater, they're very social, and it's been shown that when a killer whale gets anywhere near narwhal, they just go silent. And they're aware the killer whales are coming, and it's, it creates this really uh, big event where the narwhals get quite scared. They uh, uh, can try to leave an area. So it's something for the future to watch for sure in terms of if killer whales do exploit further northern habitats, what that will mean for the narwhal population. And there's a lot of concern from Inuit that doesn't set a good scene for narwhal in in the future. Right. And so that is why having ice year-round must be crucial for narwhal. Yes. The ice keeps ships and predators further away. And to protect that last ice area, a year ago, the Canadian government declared a part of it a marine protected area under the Oceans Act. So that means uh, there can be no new resource development, no additional human activities for five years as a start. So at this point, there are four years left on that interim protection. Of course, that can't stop the ice from melting, but it can, you know, it's trying to make sure that if indeed this is the last place in the Arctic with year-round ice, it stays as healthy as possible. Really interesting. Thank you, Lisa. Bye, Laura. Lisa Johnson is a producer with us here at What on Earth? And that does it for us this week. And don't forget, CBC Listen is the free app that lets you listen to CBC Radio, CBC Podcasts, and CBC Music. Use it to catch up on episodes on what on earth you might have missed and to listen to us live on your phone or your tablet. Thanks this week to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.